Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a great show for you guys today. We are going to jump in with the first article for today, and it's U.S. Supreme Court Jack Daniels case is a free speech fight over a dog toy. I thought this one was pretty interesting, and Blake Britton wrote the article, a trademark dispute over a poop-themed dog toy shaped like a Jack Daniels whiskey bottle comes before the U.S. Supreme Court and could redefine how the judiciary applies constitutional free speech rights to trademark law. In a case to be argued this next week, the nine justices are expected to use this legal dogfight to clarify the line between a parody protected by the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment and a trademark infringing ripoff with repercussions extending beyond booze and pet accessories. A ruling is due at the end of June. Jack Daniels Properties, Inc., owned by Louisville, Kentucky-based Brown Foreman Corporation, is appealing a lower court's decision that Phoenix-based VIP Products LLC's Bad Spaniels Chew Toy is an expressive work protected by the First Amendment. Some companies have expressed concern that a ruling against Jack Daniels would weaken their control over their brands and reputations. Others argue that a ruling favoring the whiskey maker would stifle free speech rights. This is an interesting case because it's a court that does care about the First Amendment, but also cares about business, said Elizabeth Brandon, a partner at the law firm of Streist Meyer, who has worked in intellectual property cases before the Supreme Court. And this is a case where those interests intersect in a way that's kind of hard to sort out. The toy mimics Lynchburg, Tennessee-based Jack Daniels' famous whiskey bottles with a humorous dog theme alteration, replacing old number seven with the old number two on your Tennessee carpet, and alcohol descriptions with 43% poo by volume and 100% smelly. Jack Daniels loves dogs and appreciates a good joke as much as anyone, the company told justices in a brief. But Jack Daniels likes its customers even more and doesn't want them to be confused or associating its fine whiskey with dog poop. The Rogers Test The San Francisco-based Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in its 2020 ruling in favor of VIP cited a 1989 decision by the New York-based Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in a case brought by Hollywood legend Ginger Rogers. The actress unsuccessfully sued to block the release of the 1986 film Ginger and Fred from director Federico Fellini that referred to her famed dance partnership with actor Fred Astaire. That precedent lets artists use trademarks if they have artistic relevance to a work and would not explicitly mislead consumers into thinking the trademark owner endorsed it. Jack Daniels said that under the Second and Ninth Circuit decisions, anyone could use a famous mark to sell sex toys, drinking games, or marijuana bongs while misleading customers and destroying billions of dollars in goodwill, all in the name of just having fun. President Joe Biden's administration supports Jack Daniels' appeal, saying in a brief to the Ninth Circuit that it should have applied the normal standard for trademark infringement, whether a product creates likelihood of confusion with parity among several factors to consider. Prominent brand owners, including Nike, Campbell's Soup, Patagonia, and Levi Strauss told the Supreme Court that the Ninth Circuit wrongly applied the Rogers test to consumer products and that a ruling for VIP would threaten their ability to protect their brands from bad actors. VIP Products said in a ruling favoring Jack Daniels that it would make it easier for trademark owners to stifle free speech. 
every First Amendment case has a spillover effect into other areas, according to VIP's attorney Ben Cooper of the firm Dickinson Wright. So this can't be seen as being compartmentalized into the world of trademarks. Whenever one person's speech is limited, it gets everyone else nervous. VIP told the justices its toy comments on iconic alcohol brands' self-serious bombardment of consumers with advertising and dog owners' joyful humanization of their pets. A group of intellectual property professors told the court the First Amendment was under attack by brand owners that lack a sense of humor, monopolize discussions about their brands, and exaggerate the harm expressive references cause to their trademarks. Megan Branigan, a partner of the firm Deborah Voice and Plimpton, who submitted the brief, said the impact of dumping the Rogers test could go well beyond parody and impact all expression. The Brooklyn Modern Art Collective, MSCHF, which has faced trademark lawsuits from Nike and Vans, filed a brief supporting VIP's argument. Its attorney, Bill Patterson, of the firm Swanson, Martin & Bell, said the case is supremely important to MSCHF as it threatens its ability to challenge and comment on culture outside the safe havens of white-walled galleries. MSCHF's brief included connect-the-dots puzzles for the justices and their law clerks to complete and return for the collective to sell, with winking references to their personal histories and famous trademarks. Patterson said the group has not yet received any of them back. And that is very interesting, and we will have to keep an eye on the outcome of that one. Next article. A sweet potato helped solve Massachusetts cold case murder after 12 years. And Aaron Katersky wrote this article. 12 years after a shooting death on Cape Cod, the alleged killer was caught, in part thanks to a root vegetable used in the commission of the crime, according to prosecutors. On February 27, 2011, Todd Lampley was found shot to death in a Hyannis, Massachusetts home. Deverus Hampton, 40, was arrested Friday in Massachusetts and was arraigned Monday. Exactly 12 years after the crime, Hampton pleaded not guilty and was held without bail. At the time of the murder, police found three shell casings and a sweet potato with a hole in it at the scene, according to a prosecutor for the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office. Prosecutors said they found DNA on the sweet potato that was a match for Hampton. The sweet potato appears to be used as a silencer, the prosecutor said. Fans of the HBO drama series The Wire may recall an episode in which a sweet potato was used as a silencer spawning numerous internet demonstrations to test whether it actually worked. The alleged killer may have been a fan of the show because police found a cell phone at the murder scene registered to the name of Marlo Stanfield, who is a fictional character on The Wire. It's an interesting fact pattern, says Alumba in a phone interview. In court, Alumba said there is other evidence to place Hampton at the home at the time of Lampley's shooting death, but she declined to comment when asked why it took 12 years to make the arrest. Alumba said in court Monday that Hampton was wearing a GPS monitor from a different crime at the time of the shooting, which placed him at the scene. The gun allegedly used in the crime was also fished out of a nearby lake, say prosecutors. Hampton is due back in court on April 5th. Wow, indeed, I do want to know as well why it took them 12 years to bring this guy to justice if he was wearing a GPS monitor that placed him at the crime scene. So that's a very interesting one indeed. Next article, Chinese woman replaces $146,000 worth of friends' luxury items with fakes over three years. 
Michelle de Pessina wrote this article. A Chinese woman was sentenced for stealing a friend's luxury items worth nearly 1 million yen, approximately $146,000, and replacing them with fakes. The woman, identified as Louis, stole high-end products including Hermes and Louis Vuitton handbags, Bulgari bracelets, and various branded clothing items totaling up to 940,000 yen, approximately $137,000 from the house of her friend identified as Cao. The two had reportedly known each other for years when Cao trusted Lee with her house key to help with renovations. Cao had bought a new house in the Changchun, Jilin province in 2019. As she was often away, she entrusted Lee to oversee the home's renovation. Over the course of three years, Lee stole from her friend and would cover her tracks by replacing the luxury items with high-quality fakes. In 2022, Cao discovered the fake luxury goods and reported the crime to the police. According to prosecutors, Cao did not initially believe her friend could be the suspect, and Louis misled the police investigation. Louis only came clean to her friend once the police said they had identified her as the primary suspect and were about to make an arrest. She begged her friend for forgiveness, but the friend refused. According to the prosecutor in charge of the case, Louis was having financial difficulties when she started stealing from her friend. She was sentenced to 12 years in prison by the local court. Under China's criminal law, a theft that exceeds 300,000 yuan, approximately $44,000, is punishable by more than 10 years in prison. The incident has gone viral on China's social media, with users discussing the importance of choosing friends carefully. Next article is Washington woman to be arrested after refusing tuberculosis treatment. And Ed Kara wrote this article. A Washington woman with tuberculosis who has refused treatment for over a year is set to be arrested as a result. According to the Tacoma Pierce County Health Department, the woman had repeatedly disobeyed court orders to stay isolated until she completed treatment. A local judge has now issued a warrant for her arrest, and officials plan to treat her at a nearby detention facility. In late January, the health department alerted the public to an ongoing active case of tuberculosis in the area, briefly noting that the person in question had refused antibiotic treatment. Subsequent reporting by the News Tribune revealed a drawn-out saga between the woman and health officials. In January 2022, for instance, the health department asked for and won its first court order that the woman be involuntarily isolated at home outside of required medical care until she no longer was considered a public threat. The department argued that she had begun but stopped the months-long regimen of treatment needed to eradicate the bacteria and refused to continue. Over the next year, the woman reportedly flouted court orders to stay isolated. More recently, she was alleged to have visited an emergency department following a car accident where she avoided telling staff that she had tuberculosis, potentially exposing them to infection. At the time, the department told the News Tribune that seeking the woman's arrest and involuntary detention for treatment would be a last-ditch option, an option that now seems to have become reality. Como News reported that the department went in front of Judge Philip Sorensen for an apparent 16th time last week seeking some kind of resolution. Reportedly, the woman had started taking treatment during an earlier isolation order issued between late December and February this year, but had once again stopped. Judge Sorensen went on to issue a civil warrant for her arrest. 
In each case like this, we are constantly balancing risk to the public and the civil liberties of the patient. Seeking to enforce a court order through a civil arrest warrant is always our last resort. Department spokesperson Nigel Turner told Como News. It's reportedly only the third time in 20 years that Tacoma officials have sought someone's arrest to force tuberculosis treatment. Tuberculosis rarely occurs in the U.S. nowadays, but it remains a major public health threat worldwide, with an estimated 1.6 million tuberculosis deaths reported in 2021. Though many infected people don't show symptoms, latent cases can become active years later. People with acute tuberculosis are contagious to others and, if left untreated, can develop life-threatening illness. Like many bacterial diseases of late, drug-resistant strains of tuberculosis have made it even harder to contain outbreaks. One important factor for the emergence of these strains are in cases where people fail to get treatment or stop taking the treatment before the infection is cleared. While the woman's arrest is scheduled for this next week, officials say she has the opportunity to voluntarily comply for treatment before then. Another court hearing is expected on Thursday. Should the arrest go through, she would be sent to a specially designated facility at the Pierce County Jail for isolation and treatment. Wow, that is really scary. Speaking of scary couple's child has deadly cancer gene thanks to IVF clinic's screw-up, lawsuit says. And Emily Sugarman wrote this article. Jason and Melissa Diaz thought they were giving their future child a shot at a healthy life when they opted for in vitro fertilization over natural conception. But according to the new lawsuit that they have filed, what they got was nothing short of a disaster. The California couple both carry genetic mutations, Melissa for BRCA1, which predisposes the carriers to breast cancer, and Jason for CDH1, which carries an elevated risk of stomach cancer. Jason found out about his mutation in the summer of 2018 when he developed diffuse gastric cancer and was forced to undergo a gastrectomy, a full stomach removal, when chemotherapy did not work. The life-altering procedure prevents patients from digesting food normally and causes chronic gastrointestinal pain, among other debilitating side effects. When the Diaz's decided to have children, they elected to go with IVF so they could test the embryos for the genetic mutations before implanting them. According to the lawsuit, they wanted to achieve their dreams of parenthood without subjecting their child to the stomach cancer Jason and his family members have endured. The fertility clinic they chose, HRC Fertility, advertises itself as having state-of-the-art embryology labs and remarkable lab personnel of highly trained and dedicated embryologists, according to the suit. It allegedly advertised their doctor, Bradford Kolb, as being known for helping to develop and implement cutting-edge technologies in the genetic screening of embryos. From the beginning, they expressly advised HRC Fertility and its employees and Dr. Kolb that they sought IVF with pre-implantation genetic testing to avoid having a child with Jason's CDH1 mutation for hereditary diffuse gastric cancer, suit states. Jason and Melissa ultimately created five embryos with the clinic, only one which did not carry either mutation, according to the suit. They transferred that embryo in August 2020, but Melissa ultimately miscarried. Devastated but eager to try again, the suit claims the Diaz has asked their IVF coordinator to arrange for the implantation of a male embryo that the coordinator said carried the breast cancer mutation, but not the stomach cancer mutation. 
the couple considered this a safe choice because men are significantly less likely to develop breast cancer than women. Dr. Cole transferred the embryo January 8, 2021, and Melissa gave birth to a boy in September. Jason's family threw a party for the couple to celebrate eliminating the CDH1 mutation from the Diaz family line, believing they had broken the curse that had doomed other family members to cancer and early death, the lawsuit states. But the family was wrong. According to the suit, Dr. Kolb did not transfer a male embryo without the stomach cancer gene because no such embryo existed. The IVF coordinator misinterpreted the testing results and arranged for the transfer of a male embryo with the CDH1 mutation. The baby boy now has more than 80% chances of developing stomach cancer, according to the suit. We went through the difficult and expensive process of IVF so we could spare our children what Jason has had to endure, Melissa said in a press conference. We still can't believe that after all we did, our baby has the same genetic mutation we thought we had escaped. She added, he's just such a happy baby and to know the hurt in front of him that he has to face for something we tried to prevent, it crushes me. A spokesperson for HRC said in a statement that the Diaz's had sought genetic counseling and counseling outside its facility with a third party. They wished to have a male embryo transferred, which we carried out according to the family's explicit wishes and in accordance with the highest level of care, the spokesperson said, adding that the company stands by the professionalism and expertise of our medical staff and pride ourselves on adhering to the highest standards for patient care, patient records, results, and testing in all our locations. According to the suit, the couple's child will inevitably need to undergo a gastrectomy to prevent him from developing stomach cancer. According to the lawsuit, the couple's child will inevitably need to undergo a gastrectomy to prevent him from developing stomach cancer. They hope to delay the surgery until after he's finished developing, since removing the stomach before then could result in lifelong physical and cognitive impairments. Jason, who saw two aunts die as a result of the cancer, called the results his greatest fear. I wouldn't want anyone on earth to experience this type of pain, and now I will be forced to watch my own son, my own flesh and blood, go through this, he said. Every day my heart hurts, is hurting for my baby boy, knowing the pain and challenges he has ahead of him. Even if the child is able to delay the surgery until adulthood, he will suffer from the pain, discomfort, and possible chronic diarrhea that afflicts many gastrectomy patients. The side effects may be so severe they will prevent him from taking certain jobs, according to the suit. But the couple is not suing over the alleged wrongful implantation. Instead, they're alleging a cover-up on the part of the fertility clinic, which they claim misled them even after the birth of their child. According to the suit, the couple lived happily from September 2021 until July 2022 when they decided to try for another child. As part of this preparation, Melissa asked their new IVF coordinator to send over the report on the embryos they had created with HRC so they could decide which, if any of them, they wanted to transfer. What she saw on the report terrified her. The embryo report, a copy of which is included in the complaint, contained handwritten notes that noted the embryo transferred January 2020. The couple's baby boy was positive for the stomach cancer mutation. Melissa wrote back immediately asking the coordinator to clarify whether the embryo they transferred carried the gene. 
The coordinator did not respond, and a week later, Melissa wrote again, saying the couple had been so stressed about thinking what her son will go through because of this genetic mutation. Can you please double-check this is the correct report for our embryo, she wrote. Is there any way this could be a mistake? Again, the coordinator did not respond. Eventually, the Diezes received a call from someone at HRC Fertility who admitted that there had been a mistake, according to the suit, and called the couple in for a sit-down. When Melissa asked for a copy of her medical record, the clinic sent over a copy of the embryo report without the handwritten notes, the suit says, effectively removing the evidence of which embryos had been transferred. HRC Fertility is one of the largest fertility clinics in the world, according to the suit, with nine offices across Southern California. Pasadena office that the Diaz's visited is a sprawling 26,000 square foot compound, complete with luxurious private VIP rooms, according to its website. According to the suit, the company is owned by Jinjin Fertility, one of the largest fertility companies in China. Jinjin Fertility did not immediately respond to a request for comment. HRC was also sued last summer by a same-sex couple who alleged the center transferred a female embryo into their surrogate when they had explicitly requested a male. That suit, which also claims Dr. Kolb as a defendant, is still pending in Los Angeles Superior Court. A spokesperson for the company said last year that every child has value and limitless potential regardless of gender, and they hope the couple found love and value in their healthy child while so many across the country are struggling with reproductive issues. The Diaz's have retained the services of Adam Wolf, an attorney known for his handling of IVF cases. Wolf's firm obtained a full copy of their medical record, handwritten notes included. They have initiated arbitration proceedings against HRC Fertility for the alleged wrongful transfer and are suing in California Superior Court for the alleged cover-up. The couple is requesting damages for their unimaginable mental anguish and future lost wages and medical bills. Tragically, this is yet another disaster in HRC's history of misusing parents, genetic material, and committing other grave fertility misconduct, Wolf said in a statement. In light of this history, I worry it will not be the last. Next article. Report says nurses at Southern Illinois facility force patients to dig through their own feces. Beth Hunderstorfer wrote this article along with Molly Parker. Newly released reports from the Illinois Department of Human Services watchdog office reveal shocking instances of cruelty, abuse, and poor care of patients who have mental illness and developmental disabilities at a state-run facility in rural southern Illinois. The eight reports obtained last month under the Illinois Freedom of Information Act provide new evidence of an ongoing crisis at Choate Mental Health and Development Center in Anna, which has been the subject of numerous investigative articles. In one report from November, the IDHS Inspector General wrote that two Choate employees had broken a patient's arm in October 2017 and bragged about how staff get away with abusing patients by providing scant details on reports and blaming results resulting injuries on accidental patient falls. The staffers also boasted about intimidating and bullying other employees to keep them from reporting abuse and bragged that they retaliated against those who spoke up. In another report, the inspector pointed to years of concerns about the care provided to patients who have PICA, a disorder in which people feel compelled to swallow inedible objects like coins and zippers. Several nurses told an investigator that it was a common practice to force patients with PICA to dig through their own excrement with gloved hands or with a spatula to determine whether objects they swallowed had passed, the inspector general found. 
The investigation was triggered by a complaint to the agency's abuse hotline made last spring by a faculty member who observed a patient walk out of the bathroom with a bag of feces. Patients questioned by investigators said they felt disgusted by the practice and viewed it as punitive. A clinical consultation conducted on behalf of the inspector general found the practice violated nursing standards and amounted to incompetence on the part of the Choate Nursing Department. The facility was cited for neglect, though the inspector general did not cite individual nurses for misconduct because the investigation found that it was a widely accepted procedure. This week, an IDHS spokesperson told reporters that the practice was limited to the reported incident and was stopped immediately upon discovery. In yet another report, the inspector general cited two nurses for neglecting a terminally ill patient in the days before he died in July 2021. One of the nurses failed to properly manage his pain and the other failed to notify a physician that the patient lost 21 pounds in one week. These shortcomings caused him to experience pain, emotional distress, and further deterioration of his physical health according to the Inspector General's clinical review. Proper care could have provided him a higher quality of life and more time with his family, the report said. These newly released reports relating to the events that occurred between 2017 and last spring come on the heels of a series of news stories documenting repeated failures at the Choate facility. In September, reporters found the IDHS Inspector General had investigated more than 1,500 reports of abuse and neglect over the decade ending in 2021, though staff have rarely faced serious consequences. In addition to the abuse and neglect of the facility, which houses up to 270 people with disabilities, the series revealed a culture of cover-ups at Choate, later confirmed by Inspector General reports. The news organizations uncovered workers colluding before being questioned by investigators, obstructing investigations, and lying to avoid consequences in abuse and neglect cases. In response to that reporting, Governor J.B. Pritzker said the patient abuse at Choate was awful and called for change. IDHS has not disputed the news organization's findings and has acknowledged the seriousness of concerns about the facility that date back years. Once again this week, in response to the reporter's questions, the agency detailed some of the steps it has taken to correct poor conditions at Show 8, including enhanced staff training on responding to abuse and neglect allegations, campus safety assessments, and a partnership with an outside organization to provide additional clinical support for patients who have experienced trauma. Other findings in the new Inspector General reports include mental health technicians who neglected patients and compromised safety by sleeping on the job or failing in other ways to provide proper supervision. In one case from May 2019, two patients who had been left unsupervised each accused the other of rape. In another, a patient was discovered wandering naked outside at about 4 a.m. in a mid-December morning in 2021 when the temperature had dipped into the 30s. And in a third case, a staff member's failure to provide proper supervision led to one patient assaulting another in June 2022. Further, an incident in November 2021 extended beyond neglect. A mental health technician was found to have also mentally abused and retaliated against a patient who wet himself after the tech rejected his request to use the bathroom. The worker made the man mop up the mess and tossed his personal letters into the bucket of dirty water, according to the inspector's report. When questioned by an investigator, one of the patients who witnessed the incident and corroborated the account began to cry and said he was tired of being abused. A patient abuse case from 2017 reflected a broad range of problems that have been documented at Choate. 
It revealed how some employees hide abuse and obstruct investigations, retaliate against those who speak up, and indoctrinate new employees with a cover-up culture. Their actions, the Inspector General wrote in his November 2022 report, reflect a brazenness and a sense of impunity amongst certain CHO-8 staff that must be combated. The case involved two mental health technicians who fractured a patient's shoulder October 2017 but failed to report it. Nearly five months later, someone called the agency's abuse hotline and said they had overheard the technicians Cody Barger and Jonathan Lingle bragging about breaking a patient's arm and coordinating their stories to say the patient had fallen in the shower. That led the Illinois State Police to investigate. One person told them that he had been interested in working at CHO-8, but had confided to Barger that he was not confident he could handle the residents. He said Barger then told him it was easy to get around stuff, for instance, by claiming the patients had injured themselves. Another worker told police that Lingle had instructed him to disregard most of what he would learn in training, saying he should fill out injury reports with minimal details and abide by the unwritten rule that staff cover for each other. In this case, the staff culture of complicity went even further. Months later, a security officer at the facility told Barger who had called in the complaint against him. He showed up at his then fiance's house, yelling at her for reporting him, knocking her down and daring her to kill herself before shooting an AR-15 style rifle twice into the air, according to police. The woman's young son called 911. The security officer who disclosed the identity of the person who reported Barger to the inspector general's office was initially charged with felony official misconduct, but her case was dismissed. She received more than $6,500 in back pay. Barger and Lingle were fired from CHO-8 in 2018 for unrelated misconduct. Both men were criminally charged in the injury case, not with battery, but with obstruction. They each pleaded guilty and received probation. Both men agreed not to seek employment in a healthcare setting. In the administrative review, the inspector general ruled that claims that both men had physically abused the patient was substantiated. Attempts to reach Barger and Lingle by phone via Facebook and messages sent to their attorneys were not successful. The case prompted Peter Newmeyer, the IDHS Inspector General, to issue recommendations to combat Choate's cover-up culture, including subjecting employees to consequences for retaliatory threats or behavior. He also reiterated his repeated request for Choate to install cameras. The IDHS spokesperson said the agency protects employees who report misconduct and that instances of retaliatory threats or behavior were investigated and administrative action taken as appropriate. She said that IDHS is in the process of installing cameras at outdoor locations across the campus and in some interior public spaces. More broadly, the troubles at CHO-8 have led to calls for reform from advocacy organizations, the IDHS Inspector General, and the Governor. Last month, Pritzker renewed demands that CHO-8 clean up its act or face closure. We obviously want to make sure that we're keeping everybody safe in these facilities, Pritzker said in an unrelated news conference in January. And if we can't, I've said this before, we shouldn't have that facility open. Stacey Ashman, a vice president for Equip for Equality, a legal advocacy organization that's been appointed to monitor troubled state facilities, including CHO-8, said the most recent reports of misconduct were very disturbing and at times chilling to read. Staffer actions, she said, were inhumane, set individuals back in their treatment, and in some cases caused lasting harm. The large number of staff involved in these multiple substantiated OIG reports reveal a concerning trend indicative of a culture problem at the facility, she said. 
Wow. I mean, that is just absolutely terrifying to hear that things like that are going on, although it does not seem surprising. We have a long, long way to go in reform. Next article. Former Penn State football coach Jerry Sandusky files motion for new trial in sexual abuse case. And Taylor Spirito wrote this article. Jerry Sandusky, the former Penn State assistant football coach who was found guilty of, of serial sexual abuse claims of minors, has filed a motion for a new trial on the grounds of after-discovered evidence. According to a press release, the newly discovered evidence involved a transcript of an interview between SS, a young man who was originally interviewed in 2011 by police. At that time, SS said he didn't see any of Sandusky's act as sexual in nature, never felt uncomfortable around him, and would tell the investigator if anything inappropriate happened, the release said. The release also said that six years later, SS came forward and said he had been sexually assaulted by Sandusky. According to the release, the transcript was indicative that certain attorneys used tactics to change the victim's testimonies from initial police interviews. The release stated that victims would remember blocked memories after therapy sessions and interviews by attorneys seeking substantial sums from Penn State. Sandusky, 75, was resentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison for sexually abusing children while working at Penn State as an assistant football coach. At the time of his resentencing, Sandusky asserted his innocence, choked up twice in brief remarks to the judge, and told his supporters he loves them. Next article. Trial of Lori Vallow Daybell, Idaho mother accused of killing her children, begins Monday. Here's what we know. And Terry Collins wrote this article. In a murder case that has captivated the nation, the trial of Lori Vallow Daybill, the Idaho woman accused of killing her two youngest children and her husband's ex-wife nearly three years ago, is set to begin. Jury selection is set to begin this next week in a trial that has already been postponed twice for several reasons, including determining Daybell's competency. This surreal saga has drawn widespread speculation and has been the subject of a Netflix docuseries. Daybell and her husband, Chad Daybell, have pleaded not guilty to a litany of charges, including murder, conspiracy, and grand theft in the deaths of Joshua J.J. Vallow, age 7, and Tylee Ryan, 16, in 2020. The couple are also accused of killing Chad Daybell's former wife, Tammy, who unexpectedly died October 2019, about two weeks before Chad Daybell married Vallow Daybell. Prosecutors say Vallow Daybell and Chad Daybell practiced apocalyptic and doomsday-driven religious beliefs as part of a plan to kill the kids and Tammy. Prosecutors also say the strategy was part of a plot to steal social security and insurance money. A trial date has not been set for Chad Daybell. A judge separated his case from Vallow after new DNA evidence was submitted. The Daybells could face life in prison or, in the case of Chad Daybell, also the death penalty if convicted. The trial is definitely going to be a show for sure, and even more so if Lori Vallow Dayville takes the stand, says John Della Torre, a forensic and disaster psychologist in Arizona and Texas. I'm interested to see the evidence that prosecution is going to use to negate the delusional thinking that Lori has engaged in. Vallow Dayville saw a twisted tale. Police in Idaho began investigating Vallow Daybell and her husband after JJ's grandmother and other family members said they hadn't heard from their two grandchildren in months and reported them missing in November 2019. Police later said the children were last seen in Rexburg, Idaho in September 2019. 
The couple refused to cooperate with the investigation and soon left Idaho and fled to Hawaii in December 2019. Police said Vallodayville knew where the children were. Authorities would begin a search for the couple and ordered them to produce the children. The couple was later found in Kauai, Hawaii in January 2020 without the children. They were then extradited to Idaho. The children's bodies were ultimately found buried on Daybell's property in rural eastern Idaho in June 2020. The couple promoted strange religious beliefs, prosecutors say. Friends also told law enforcement investigators that Vallow Daybell and Chad Daybell believed people could be taken over by dark spirits. At one point, a friend of the couple's, Melanie Gibb, told investigators Vallow Daybell referred to her children as zombies, a term the couple allegedly used to describe people who were possessed. Prosecutors have argued that the couple adopted apocalyptic beliefs to encourage or justify their murders. Vallow Daybell's trial was first postponed in 2021 after she was declared incompetent to stand trial. She was committed to the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare for treatment. About 10 months later, she was ruled competent after a second trial was postponed to wait results to determine whether she was mentally fit for trial. Now that the trial is set to begin, Vallow Daybell's legal team requested the judge exclude most family members from watching portions of her trial. Vallow Daybell's defense attorney, Jim Archibald, pointed out that Kay Woodcock, J.J. Vallow's grandmother, was expected to attend the trial and could be called to testify. Archibald argues that Woodcock is not a grandma and doesn't fall into Idaho state code that any immediate family is considered victims of the homicide. Grandma is a name she has given herself, Archibald told District Court Judge Boyce. Her son terminated parental rights. She is not a grandma. But prosecutors say Woodcock and her husband meet the state's definition of immediate family members. Boyce has already issued an order to exclude witnesses from sitting in on each other's testimony. The judge will also rule on the immediate family member question soon as well. Vallow Daybell will not face the death penalty if she is convicted, Boyce ruled last month. Prosecutors have sought the death penalty for Vallow and Chad Daybell originally. Vallow Daybell's lawyers argue that they did not have enough time to go over the prosecution's recently submitted evidence, though. The judge agreed, according to the Associated Press, and said Vallow Daybell has not waived her right to a speedy trial, so the proceedings could not be rescheduled to give her defense team enough time to review the new evidence. The death penalty still applies to Chad Daybell's case, and that death penalty application may make a difference for Chad Daybell if prosecutors can strike a deal with him in exchange for a possibly lesser sentence, says a forensic psychologist who is looking at the case. A potential deal might even include Daybell testifying against his wife, so they're trying to get them to turn against one another. I would not be surprised if he takes the stand. I don't think Chad is as devout of a believer as Lori is. If he decides to witness for the prosecution, it may be from the perspective of how can I make this all better for me? And then there's the possibility that Vallow Daybell might have to testify in her defense if her husband testifies against her. Some jurors may have a hard time believing a mother is capable of killing her children. The first assumption is a woman can't do that, and the second is if she did, it's because she was crazy. And those theories were not what the prosecution wants the jury to go to. Delatory said all it takes for the defense is for one juror to have reasonable doubt. I think it is a double-edged sword to Vallow Daybell to testify there's a lot of high risk, high reward. Vallow Daybell also faces charges in Arizona of conspiracy to commit murder in connection with the death of her former husband, Charles Vallow. He was shot in 2019 by Vallow Daybell's brother, Alex Cox. 
Fallow, Daybell, and Cox claimed the shooting was in self-defense. Cox later died of natural causes, but the Arizona case remains on hold as Fallow, Daybell's fate in the Idaho trial unfolds, and we will most certainly keep you all posted on that one. And if you want to learn more about the Lori Vallow Daybell case, you can go back and listen to our episode that we posted on that. We originally posted the episode on Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell in episode 81 that was posted June 14th, 2020. So if you want more details on that case, go back and listen to that one. And one final article for the day, and this one is pretty disturbing too. Children as young as 10 and rape victims were sterilized in Utah as late as the 1970s. Time is running out to get justice. And Marianne Gounod wrote this article. When a teenage girl in 1928 told her bishop that she had been raped by her brother, she was labeled an idiot. Instead of getting help, she was taken to the Utah State Hospital and sterilized against her will. The bishop later admitted she had likely been sold into sex work by her family. Disturbing stories such as this have been uncovered as part of a new study into the scale of Utah's 50-year eugenic assault. Starting in the early 1900s, 32 states passed laws to enable state officials to recommend sterilization for those thought to be unfit, feeble-minded, or immoral. Most states backtracked their programs in the 50s, but Utah continued sterilizing victims until 1974, the study published Wednesday found. At least 830 women, men, and children were coercively sterilized. It said the procedures were carried out on children as young as 10. In all likelihood, 54 of these victims are still alive today, and researchers are now calling on Utah to apologize and take accountability for its role in the program. There are very likely people walking around Utah today with scars of this injustice, according to James Taverney, a professor of philosophy at the University of Utah and an author on the study. Utah's sterilization program peaked in the 40s and did not end until 1974. As the program grew, increasingly younger people were sent for sterilization. Of the 830 people who were sterilized in Utah, 50 are known to have been children aged between 10 and 14 years. At least another 198 were aged between 15 and 19. One child was under 10 years old when she was sterilized per the study. The idea of forced sterilization was simple. Eugenics told people at the time that immorality was determined by genes, so that would mean the social elite were in their place because of their superior genetics. It then followed that those societies saw as misfits, for instance, the impoverished and those charged with crimes, as well as the disabled, should not be allowed to pass on their genes. By the mid-20th century, it became abundantly clear for human genetics that this is just not the case. Most states that carried on with their program did not change the law, but Utah in 61 went through the trouble of updating their law to make sure it could stand the test of time. They came up with a new justification that let them lower the bar for what they had to prove to sterilize somebody. Instead of having to prove that something was heritable, you just have to decide that the people aren't going to be able to be good parents. I find it absolutely appalling, I have an eight-year-old daughter, that these children could at that age already be deemed either unfit to pass on their genes or incapable of parenting, say the experts. 
Like many other states in the U.S., the people who are deemed unfit in Utah, labeled as feeble-minded, would be sent off to state institutions, first the Utah State Hospital, then the Utah State Training School from 1931. There was shame associated with having a child with a disability. Now the focus is on having them live comfortably with their family, but at the time in the U.S., they were institutionalized. At the Utah State Training School, students were meant to learn practical skills like housework, sewing, and shoe mending. Students lived in 88-bed bunks under the supervision of matrons. Those sent to those institutions usually had to stay between three and six years for their training. Sterilization was mandatory for release according to the Utah Historical Quarterly, so victims often felt like they did not have a choice. That's the case of George, a 36-year-old man who received a vasectomy when he was 19. George, the report said, would have liked to have had children, but went along with the operation anyway. It appears he felt there was nothing he could do to prevent the operation, per the report. Sam, a 17-year-old in the 1970s, initially strongly rejected the idea of sterilization because he wanted to have children, but was subdued over the months. Sam gave the interviewer the impression he thought the sterilization was inevitable and there was not much he could do to prevent it. It did not take much to be categorized as feeble-minded either. This was a catch-all term for all sorts of things. It could be an intellectual disability. It could be just because you're poor. Anything that kind of made you seem a bit dull, the staff could get you labeled as feeble-minded. There was a whole host of operations carried out on the victims. These ranged from a simple vasectomy or a tubal ligation, commonly known as having your tubes tied or to having the testicles and ovaries removed. According to a 1930s thesis, at least one victim also had her clitoris removed. Some victims may not have even been aware of what happened to them. It was either a function of them being so profoundly disabled that they just sort of weren't capable of understanding what was going on, or they were told that something else was happening, like their appendix was coming out. One of these was Fred, a 21-year-old who worked as a janitor at the training center in the 70s, according to one report. Fred recalled having an operation and his genital being slabbed with a red substance, likely a disinfectant. But Fred had virtually no understanding of the sterilization per the thesis. He still thought he could have children. It's not easy to find information about the victims. There's been no formal reparation process in Utah, and victims remain mostly anonymous. There's a lot of shame surrounding, and it's not the kind of thing you find people are eager to talk about. To find the information reportedly on the study, the researchers read contemporaneous academic theses from master's students who studied sterilization at the time. They also worked with the Utah State Developmental Center to get data about sterilizations, formerly called the Utah State Training School, where most of the sterilizations happened in Utah. The results of their investigation were published in the peer-reviewed journal The Lancet Regional Health, Americas. Even though we weren't able to kind of identify and interview any of these people, these theses from 50 years ago do have these reflections in there. Utah is far from being the state with the most victims, though. California is thought to have recommended upwards of 20,000 people for sterilization. But per capita, Utah's program was fairly aggressive, just given the fact that there weren't a lot of people here. But unlike most other states like California, North Carolina, and Virginia, Utah has yet to apologize or start a reparation process. What's so powerful about these things like apologies from governors or legislatures is it sends a message to the survivors who are still around that the fault wasn't with them. It was with the state. It is with people who abused the sort of state power and made decisions for you that you should have made for yourself. It's an offering of taking that shame away.
Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. Please join us again next week, folks, when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!